0: 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, man, isn't it good to be in God's house? What a blessing it is. I appreciate Miss Ina's word of testimony. That was an encouragement to me. I remember in the house we used to live in before uh, the house we're in now, we had a family of squirrels that moved into the eaves of our house and uh, every morning, early in the morning, they'd come running up and down through the eaves of the house. And, uh, you say, preacher, what'd that teach you? Well, nothing. I wasn't near as spiritual as Miss Ina is about it. The thoughts I was having in my head weren't near as spiritual. I do, I would say this, in retrospect, maybe it, it trained me to raise two boys. Amen. Because earlier I was in the basement of my house and, uh, the sound emanating from the top floor of them running up and down the hall sounded exactly like that family of squirrels. So, You know, I think we call that the unconscious preparation of God in our life or something. But yeah, I appreciate that good word of testimony. Isn't it good to know, hey, things are dark right now, uh, but they're going to get better. And I don't mean that uh, I'm looking for a utopia. I mean, I'm looking for heaven and I'm looking for the king, the Christ of heaven. I'm looking for him to return. Amen. I'm under no delusions that this world is going to to get better, but I do believe that we have a bright and shining hope as as children of God. I want to preach to you a little bit about that hope tonight. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, we're going to read just three verses and then we'll pray. Word of God says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I pray that you bless the preaching of thy word. May it encourage your people tonight. May it speak to our hearts. May it convict us, Lord. Let it let it smite our pride, Lord, and let it humble us, but let it uh, draw us unto a closer walk with thee and a deeper commitment unto you, and we'll be sure to thank you for what's done. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes in the reading of God's Word, I think there is a tendency to, uh, even though we know that this King James Bible is the Word of God, we know it's inerrant, we know it's inspired, we know that it presents to us everything exactly as it ought to be, it is without error, it is without any mixture of error in any way, it's not just the Word of God, it's the words of God exactly like God would have them be. Even though we know all that to be true, I feel like sometimes, me at least, and you're you're probably more spiritual than me, you're probably not afflicted with this, but I feel like sometimes we tend to disassociate the people that pin down the Word of God and the stories and occasions found in the Word of God, and they become almost fables in the way that we treat them. Now, I don't mean that we view them or believe them to be fables, but somehow I think we use, uh, lose the relevancy of God's Word in imagining that somehow the people that God used and, and the people whose lives God gives to us in the Word of God were somehow markedly different than you and I. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I, listen, I'd love to be an Apostle Paul. I'll probably never be an Apostle Paul. I'd love to be a Daniel. I'll probably never be a Daniel. But I'm under no uh delusion in believing that in the Word of God that the men whose lives are recorded and uh the men whom God put the pen of the Holy Ghost in their hand, uh, that they were somehow superhuman and did not experience the same things that you and I experienced. And I think being that sometimes we lose that sense of relevancy in the Word of God, of relating to the truth of what God's Word says, I think sometimes we can... Uh, paint ourselves in a corner in such a way that it robs the word of God of its power and its impact. Now here's what I mean when I say that. When I study the book of 1 John, there is a tendency somehow to believe that this was pinned down in a time of great ecclesiastical and doctrinal purity when the church was roaring with power, when God's word and work was uh, thundering throughout the world. But when you study the book of 1 John, what you'll find is that in many ways, John was pinning these words down, writing to a group of people that were experiencing much the same things that you and I are experiencing today. And once we realize that, what we learn is this. This is just, it's not an abstract uh, record of history, but rather it is the living Word of God that can speak directly to our lives today. If we believe that somehow this book was uh, written to a different group of people in a different time, in a different setting, wholly separate and different from us, then what good is it to read the Word of God? I don't know about you, but I need some of that what Peter calls present truth present truth. Now that same commandment that's been given, that same inerrant infallible word that's been given is that present truth. But we have to understand that reality as we study the word of God. In other words, we can look at it and say, well, you know, I don't know if I could ever be like them. I don't know if what they're saying could ever apply to me. Or we could recognize that the same eternal God that spoke to their life through this word speaks to our life through this word as well. As such, I want us to think for just a few moments before we preach about the time that John was writing this. Again, we're living in uh, unprecedented times in our country. There are meaningful changes taking place in our country and in the world around us. I don't merely mean just a cycle of history that sort of regurgitates itself, but I mean things that at least for our young country, we have never experienced before. But can I give you a little word of encouragement here tonight? It may be the first time that our country is experiencing these things, but it is not the first time that God's people are experiencing these things. Uh, we need to listen. I, I am. I, you say, preacher, how American are you? I blew up everything I could blow up on Sunday night. Somebody say amen to that. And proud doing it. We're setting off fireworks and and, and the crowd back there had Lee Greenwood playing and everything. And I, I mean, it, you know, as American as American gets, uh, but understand this reality, if your sole identity is in that of being an American, uh, it's not going to be long where that identity is going to be challenged and possibly obliterated. Your identity better be in something deeper. And I'm not saying that I'm not proud to be an American, as uh, Brother Greenwood uh, sings, but I am saying this, that we better make sure our roots go deeper than simply that, because we may live to see a time where there is no such thing as to be an American. And we are certainly living in a time now when to be an American does not mean what it did 50 years ago, 100 years ago. As such, our identity has to be something deeper. And John writes to a group of people whose identity is anchored in the identity of Christ. If we're going to weather the things that we may have to experience, we better make sure our identity is in Christ above and beyond all other things. Think with me for a moment about this. When John is writing this, he's writing this during, number one, I would say it this way, lewd days. What I mean is he's writing this not at a time when Christianity is ascendant in the West and the idea of being a Christian is something uh, that is as common as breathing air. He's writing this during a time uh, when the Roman persecution against believers of Jesus Christ was at its very height. He's writing it at a time when it could cost you your life to say, I'm a Christian. He's writing it at a time when Roman emperors are lighting their garden parties with the flaming uh, corpses of, of Christians. He's writing it at a time when Christians are being uh, burned at the stake, being uh, ushered into arenas to be uh, fed to wild animals, times when there is the wholesale, wholesale publicly accepted state-sanctioned murder of followers of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, preacher, we're living in dark days, and I don't know how bad it's going to get. I can read my Bible and get somewhat of an idea of how bad it's going to get. I don't know how, I I believe this, I don't believe the church is going to live through one moment of the tribulation. But I believe that we have no guarantee that it's going to be all roses and peaches all the way up to the trumpet even. And that being the case, I don't know what kind of... Uh, it, what kind of persecution we may experience. But I'd say this, this ain't the first time that the church has weathered persecution. It's not the first time that the church has been faced with hostile, uh, a hostile society and very likely a hostile state. In fact, I'm just going to say it, a hostile state towards Christianity because we are living in a time where it is rapidly approaching that and in some uh, ways is already there. But John writes to people that are experiencing that. That tells me this, if it was good for them, it's especially good for us because we ain't even where they were at yet. We are probably headed that way. But we are not there yet. So it must be, if I uh, feel as though uh, increasingly there is uh, animosity towards Bible-believing Christians, uh, then I can read the book of First John and take comfort in knowing that it was written during a time when Bible-believing Christians were hated and were persecuted and were despised by society, government powers, culture, everyone around them. He was writing in a time of lewd days. Now somebody's going to say, well, okay, preacher, It was hard times, but you know, I mean, the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? I mean, during those hard times, God's people, they always get more spiritual and they always uh, become greater Christians. Isn't that true, preacher? But if we study the book of 1 John, you know what we'll find? We'll find that it was a time when the New Testament church was roiling and boiling in turmoil, doctrinally speaking. In fact, I would say this, the same John that pins down about the lukewarm church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation is the same John that pins down about the problems that were existent in the church that he's writing to in 1 John, Second John, and 3 John. I would say it this way, he was writing uh, during lewd days, but number two, he was writing during lukewarm days. If the first suggests to us it was a time of outward persecution, then certainly the things that John writes reminds us that he was writing during a time of inward problems. Now, we could spend hours and hours uh, unpacking what those problems are, but I can summarize it to you in just a few short statements. Gnosticism had taken root in the New Testament church. Now, Gnosticism still exists in the church today. It doesn't call itself Gnosticism. Uh, the obsession with uh, the spiritualized or the emotional uh, is embodied in the charismatic movement. Uh, the obsession with the idea of elitism and being part of this special little group that knows things that no one else knows uh, is uh, embodied in the Calvinistic Movement And then the idea that sin is relative, uh, that sin is not something that is distinct and literal, but it is relative and subjective is characterized in the broader economical movement of today. You see, Gnosticism still exists today, but I'd remind you it also existed in John's day. It was a time uh, when there were uh, fierce battles within uh, the uh, lines of the New Testament church regarding important paramount doctrines like things like sin, the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is still something that many theologians would argue about today. The virgin birth, Uh, likewise, it was a time when uh, the inerrancy of the Word of God was disputed and disregarded by many. It was a time, in other words, where the church wasn't perfect. Uh, We sometimes think, well, you know, preacher, it's never been like it is now because the church is so corrupt. I would say this, there's a lot more that we're calling the church today than there ever has been before. There's a lot of things that are foreign and alien to biblical doctrine that have no semblance of New Testament Christianity that are being called the church today. But even within what we would consider churches that are basically biblical in their perspective and rightly could be called a Bible-believing church, understand there's still problems, doctrinally corruption, uh, infighting, all sorts of things. So when I read this, you know, sometimes it'd be easy to say, well, John couldn't help me because it wasn't as hard a time then as it is now. No, I'd say it was harder times. Sometimes we'd read it and we'd say, well, John couldn't help me because the church was in better shape then than it was now. No, it might not have been in as big a shape as it is now, but it was certainly in as bad a shape as it is now. And then I would say this, he's writing not only during lewd days and lukewarm days, but he's writing during last days. And this, I think, really gets to the heart of the matter. It was a time of outward persecution. It was a time of inward problems. But John reminds us, and we see it in our text here, that because of that, It was a time for a heavenward perspective. Now, when we use the term last days, and it's used several times in the New Testament, uh, probably the most familiar passage, the Bible says, beloved, in in the last days perilous times shall come. The term last days is more theological than it is chronological. Now, what I mean by that is this. John was living in the last days. We, too, are living in the last days. The term last days reflects to that period of time immediately preceding Christ rapturing out the church and the tribulation period commencing upon earth. It is an eschatological and theological term that is used there. And sometimes I think when we consider that idea of last days, there is a tendency for some people to think, oh, it's like the last day of vacation. All we're doing is packing and getting out of here. But rather, I think what's being uh, reflected to us is this, that in these last days that we are living in, there is nothing else that we are waiting for. God has revealed himself from his son or through his son from heaven. He's given us a completed, inerrant Bible. He's given us that Holy Spirit of promise whereby we're sealed till the day of redemption. He's given us the way Paul says it is all things pertaining unto life and godliness. The answer, in other words, isn't it's the last day, so quit trying. The answer is it's the last days, so you better get it done. Because there's no opportunity after this. So I would say this, theologically speaking, we're living in exactly the same time period that John was living in. We're living in these last days. So that tells me that everything John says here puts squarely into the jurisdiction of our preaching tonight the truths that he gives us. I would like to give you four, five, six, I don't know, twelve things. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Words that John writes to these, and I said it this way, bewildered, beloved, bewildered, beloved. I would say, number one, you say, preacher, what do we need to know living in these days that we're living in? Well, look at verse number one. John says this, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Christians all the time are wringing their hands and, 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 uh, you know, clutching pearls and, and just tore all the pieces from the floor up at how wicked our world is. And I understand we live in a wicked world, but the first thing that God gives us here is a word of encouragement and reminding us that despite all of the hatred and vitriol that the world may turn towards God's people, despite all of the wickedness that may run rampant and seek through every single facet of society, we need to be encouraged in understanding there are some things that this world cannot change and cannot touch and cannot know. He says, listen, when you get discouraged, just take a moment, look at Calvary and recognize all that God has done for you. Look at it carefully. Behold, he says, that means to fix your eyes upon. Now, obviously, we cannot fix our eyes, physically speaking, upon a reality or a fact, but we can fix the eye of faith upon that, our mind's eye, our heart's eye, and we can meditate upon what God has done for us. Listen, I I, I just believe, and maybe this is wrong, maybe this is completely, maybe I'll get to heaven and have to apologize to everybody for saying this, but it's how I feel right now. I'm wondering if we wouldn't all be better off just turn the TV off, unplug, and quit soaking and marinating in all of the wickedness that is around us all the time. Listen, you ain't edified by it and I ain't edified by it. I'm not saying that God's people should put their head in the sand and pretend like there's not a world out there. Nor do I believe that we ought to hook up to the world's information pipeline like a drip vein in our in our like main line it straight into our heart and spend all of our time obsessing over every little thing that goes on. You say, preacher, what should we do? Well, we ought to get our eyes off that, get our eyes on what God has done for us. Behold, what manner of love! the father hath bestowed upon us now this is distinct and i don't i don't want to we'll, we'll we'll deviate a little we'll veer a little bit from just a, a tight exposition of these verses tonight Uh, But I don't want to just jettison it completely. And I would say when he talks about what manner he's using that in comparison to the statement he's going to make at the end of verse 2, when he talks about therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. It's describing Christ as being treated as alien by this world, as being from another world, of another world, completely unrelated to this world system and its culture. And it's reminding us that just like Christ was of another world, the love that He bestowed upon us was of another world as well. In other words, uh, trying to call our mind to a transcendent or higher level of relationship with the Lord Jesus. But I, listen, I'd just be a little simpler tonight, and I'd say it this way. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What? That we should be called the sons of God. We cease to be children of Adam and we become the sons of God when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the fact that's something that this world cannot take, cannot rob from you, cannot disrupt from you. Uh, it's something that, that they cannot uh, you know, disenfranchise you of. It is something that irrespective of what this world does to try to unravel and systematically obliterate the well-being and livelihood and reputation of God's people, it cannot change who you are in the eyes of God. Uh, we are living in the information age. And we thought what that would mean would be a wealth of information. But we are learning it to mean a weaponization of information. And as such, recognizing that in the days that we live in, you don't have to tell the truth to destroy someone. It can be terrifying, particularly God's people whose whole life is vested in our testimony, being a testimony of the world around us, and recognizing that we can only expect to be misunderstood and maligned and lied about and treated illly. Sometimes it can be discouraging. We can feel ineffective. But John reminds us here that nothing the world says about us, does towards us, or takes from us can change who we are in Jesus Christ. That ought to be a source of encouragement for us in this day, that we should be called the sons of God. There's a word of encouragement here. Number two, I see a word of explanation oh. He says, therefore, now, uh, you know, the." I heard it said one time, the therefores are there for a reason. Don't dismiss the therefores in the word of God because they show a connection between two thoughts and two ideas. He's just got through describing the glorious transaction and promotion that took place in your life and mine. When we went from being a son or daughter of Adam, a child of hell, to being translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, been born again, made a child of the living God. What a glorious thing. And he says, as a result, as a result of that, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. I think the most baffling phenomenon in the church today, and this is true of Wallridge but it's true of probably every church. It's true of your life and it's true of my life. Is the unrelenting surprise that we have that the world does not appreciate our Christianity. We're just dumbfounded by it. I mean, you know, my Christianity is awesome, right? So everybody should be excited about it. And yet all through the New Testament, Christ over and over and over and over again rung the same bell of telling his disciples this world will hate you. We come along in this world and find out one day somebody hates us for our Christianity and we are just dumbfounded. We can't believe that someone would dare hate us for being a Christian. I'm proud, as I've already said, to have been born in and grown up in America. There are things we take for granted. You understand that the rest of the world doesn't have a bill of rights. We may not have one for much longer. But the rest of the world has never had a bill of rights like we have here. Things like the constitutional protection. The Constitution didn't give us the right to free speech or the right to assembly or the right to freedom of expression, freedom of worship, or the right to keep and bear arms. It merely uh, protected those things. Those rights are given to us from God, not from government. But nowhere else in the world has a country even had this. You ought to study sometime the absolute void of freedom or guarantees of freedom that are existent in countries around the world. I'm proud to be a part of the American nation. That being said, I think sometimes we have gotten so used to this notion that we are not to be discriminated against, not to be ill-treated or maligned, not to be abused, that now that the world is completely disregarding that little piece of paper that nobody in Washington believes in anyway, and beginning to do these things, we are shocked by. It. And yet our Bible, and let me just tell you, listen, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm thankful for that piece of paper that they got in Washington. But it don't come nowhere near this right here. And this has told me, though that piece of paper said that forever and always all men will be treated equal in our country, uh, that may not always be the case. But everything this book says will always be true. And this book tells me Christ told his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Uh, it, it, it would just help us. I'm telling you, every few years, a politician comes along and we think we found one that's going to fix it. Every few years, some petition comes along and we sign it and think it's going to help. Every few years, there's some movement sweeps through our country and we think, oh yes, now this is the time. And over and over and over and over, God's people are left bewildered and discouraged at the people that have failed them. Could it be God's trying to get the people of America, God's people in America, to quit looking to all those other things and start looking to Him? Uh, listen, I, I don't care who He is. There's only one Savior. And there ain't nobody, there ain't nobody gonna, gonna save our country. If they did, they sure enough wouldn't come out of New York or Washington D.C. or, or, that's not where they're gonna come from, alright? Uh, now, listen, they might come from stump lick Kentucky or something, but they ain't gonna, if there's anybody with common sense enough, they're not gonna come out of that slime and that cesspool. But understand, we might as well just get used to it. Just get used to it. Get used to the fact that as a Christian, whatever rights this world may tell you you have, it is always and only a lie. Because your Bible says that this world will hate you because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Go ahead and get used to it. You say, preacher, that don't encourage me. Go back to that first point. That encouraged me. No, but you need to understand why things are the way they are. You need to understand that we may have seasons of reprieve in our country, and I praise God for it. I want every bit of easing of this that we can get. I don't begrudge it. But we need to quit expecting it. And we need to recognize that this world, because it knoweth us not, or because it knew him not, it knoweth us not. The only way that we can get this world comfortable with us is by smothering and stifling the light of Christ in our life. That's the only way. This is something that we have to choose between. The more that we let Christ shine and live through our life, through through obedience to the Holy Spirit, and through living a life according to the Word of God, the more this world will hate us. If we choose to take the road of the coward and the compromiser, it may lead to a tentative peace agreement, a, a ceasefire with this world's hostilities, but at the expense and at the cost of our testimony, our life, our witness for Jesus Christ and His glory and His well-pleasing. I see a word of explanation, but then look at verse number two. I see a word of exhortation. He says in, in, in verse number two, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. I like that. You like that too, don't you? Man, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Sometimes, living in these days, we will uh, mutter to ourselves, maybe not out loud, but in our heart we'll say things like this. Why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be a constant battle and warfare? Why is it that we have to battle with our flesh to muster boldness and, and, and courage to be a witness for Jesus Christ? And why is it that despite our, our earnest desire to live for Him, we still fail seemingly day? John says, I've got an answer for that. Positionally, you are a son of God, eternally, thoroughly, securely. But practically speaking, we still walk in this old flesh. Here's what he's doing. He's exhorting us to be mindful and to be cautious concerning our reality. Let us never be so heady and high-minded as to believe that somehow we are above sin, that we do not commit sin, that we are above temptation, that it holds no pitfalls, no danger for us, because that simply is not the case. Now, as I said, my intention is not to give a real tight exposition of of this passage, but I'd remind you that he's writing this to a group of believers that are surrounded on all sides by people that are telling them that sin is not real, it is subjective, and it is relative, And, you know, when you make something subjective and relative, what you really do is turn it into a fairy tale. It just doesn't exist anymore. This is a lot of what's happening in our country with justice, by the way. Uh, Justice has become a relative proposition. If you or I break a law, uh, they'll throw the book at us. But if people with enough connections, enough money, enough power, the right last name, whoever it is, if they break laws, somehow the law does not apply to them. Well, what does that do? It creates a breakdown in justice in a society, people eventually become lawless. They do things like walk into, uh, CVS's or Walgreens or Neiman Marcus or Macy's and, and fill up duffel bags full of merchandise and run out because all justice has broken down in society. The same thing's true as regards anything. If you make it relative, what you're really doing is saying it doesn't exist. You know what situational ethics is? Immorality. That's what situational ethics are. Situational ethics is I'm going to do whatever I want to at any given time, right? Uh, so you've made it relative. Well, by the same token, he's writing to people that have made the idea of sin relative. And he is reconciling what they are saying with the new life of Christ in the believer. These are believers that are experiencing the weight and burden of the fact that they do sin. And they mess up and they make mistakes like you do, like I do. And yet they're having people that are telling them that if you were living right, if you love God... You never would sin. There's still people say that today, and he says, "No, that's not the reality." What the reality is is this: God has made us something spiritually speaking, and uh, not not relatively speaking, but spiritually speaking. Positionally, we are this right now. We are the sons of God. We're not on way away. We're not on probation. We are the sons of God right now, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Positional truth practical truth. You'll find this all through the Word of God, really as regards every facet of the salvation of the believer. There's a positional truth and a practical truth, but he's reminding us of this. You say, preacher, why is it so hard sometimes? Isn't it good to know this is not the end of it all? What I what I experience, my weakness, my frailty, the infirmity of my flesh, the the, the, the propensity, the tendency to yield to temptation that I have, that you have, is not the end of the matter. One of these days, God is going to deal with that. What's that going to look like? Well, I like this. Look at verse number two. Look at the very end of it. Uh, let's read the whole thing. It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Praise the Lord for them. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Okay, of course that's true. We're not. I hope this is not the end of it. I hope one of these days uh, something's going to change. Well, when's that going to happen? He says, but we know. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a word of expectation that's given to these believers during this time. Now, what is that expectation? I would say it is twofold. I would say, one, it is an expectation regarding a return. It says he shall appear. It doesn't say hopefully he'll appear. It doesn't say he'll come back but not appear, as some spiritualists would like us to believe. That he'll come back but that return won't be literal visible bodily it'll just be spiritual and usher in some kind of ecumenical utopia no he says he shall appear don't you love how your king james bible reads it reads exactly like it ought to it don't just say he shall return if i wrote it i might have said it that way but the holy ghost is smarter than me or you so he said appear when he shall appear there's a promise of his of his return he's coming back Oh, how easy it is for that to become abstract to us. But you understand, there's going to come a day because nobody nobody just disappears. Every man will spend eternity somewhere. There's going to come a day that all of the people, and listen, there's probably some of them that we've got wrong. Uh, There's probably some of them we think are good that are bad. Probably some of them we think are bad that are good. Not many. (laughs) A a good rule of thumb when talking about world leaders is just say they're all bad. And then one day we get to heaven, we'll ask forgiveness of the one or two that we misjudged. But it's good to be reminded that one of these days, every knee, every knee will die. Every one, every tongue will confess. The ones that have lied, the ones that have manipulated, the ones that have, have abused and destroyed uh, civilizations and societies and maligned people and weaponized deception as a means of subjugating the world. One of these days, and it may be the only truth they ever tell, but they'll have to look up into the eyes of Son of God and say, Thou art the Lord of glory. He's returning. And when He does, things aren't going to be right till He does. But you better believe things will be right once He does. He's going to set it right. But not only is there a a promise of a return, there's a promise of a resurrection because it says this, when that happens, we shall be like Him. And here's why. For we shall see Him as He is. The Bible talks about, Paul talked about it, and I believe it's 2 Corinthians, he talked about how that Moses, when he beheld God, uh, that the glory of God transferred from God unto Moses. And Moses didn't even look upon God's face because God wouldn't permit him to. But just that glimpse of the backside of God was enough to take the shine of heaven and put it on his face for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, he walked veiled, with a veil over his face because they couldn't behold him because of the glory of God. And Paul says, you know, that's that's precious and that's sweet, uh, but you know something greater is going to be done when we see Christ. We'll be changed glory to glory. In seeing him, the image of Christ will be stamped upon our visage, will be transformed and changed to be like him. Paul said it this way, that our vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. Say, Preacher, it's awful hard sometimes. I know it is. I'm not being cute or being smart aleck when I say, I know it is. I know it's a battle sometimes. It's a battle in our mind and a battle in our heart and a battle in our flesh. But I'm glad. Hey, listen, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm glad there's a word of expectation. And then he leaves us in, in verse three. I'll mention this and be done with a word of examination. He says, and every man that hath this hope in him purify himself, even as he is pure. That's an interesting phrase. It does not say if you have this hope in you, you should purify yourself. Rather, it says if you do have this hope in you, you will purify yourself. Uh, There's a lot of us that talk and we say, And I don't know if it's your life, my life. I'm not speaking directly to an individual in the room, although I hope the Holy Ghost is to all of our hearts. But probably everybody in this room would say, oh yes, preacher, I believe he's coming soon. But you know what the Word of God says? You, You can't listen to what people's lips say. You have to look at what their life says. You know that sometimes our lips will deceive even our own selves. But our life will dictate and declare whether we really have this hope. I've shared this with you before, but when I was growing up, I was the best child in the world. Listen, if you don't get nothing else out of it, you all get a little comic relief when you come to church. Well, now let me finish. I was the best child in the world from 2.45 to 3.15 in the afternoon. The reason why is at 3.15, I could expect to hear the garage door open and my daddy's truck pull in. And so for that last half hour at least, it took years of of meticulous scientific research to learn just how short or long my mother's emotional memory was. And it was about 30 minutes. If you did something at 28 minutes, dad was going to hear about it. But if you did something at 35 minutes, chances are she'd let it go. And so for that 30 minutes, I mean, I straightened up. I walked straight. I did right because I knew he was coming. I knew he was coming. You didn't have to ask me if I knew Daddy was coming home. You could tell by the way I was behaving. Now, if you'd asked me at 11 a.m., you would have seen something quite different. And I believed he was coming home, you understand, But the imminence of his return was not pressing upon me. I thought to myself, I've got plenty of time to fix whatever I break between now and then. See, here's the question. I don't want to know if you believe if he's coming back. I know you believe that he's coming back. I want to ask you, do you believe he could be coming back today? Today, imminent, at this very moment. That's what the word imminent means, isn't it? At the door doesn't mean necessarily it will be soon. What it does mean is it could be soon. It could be in this very next moment. Now, you can give an answer. But what I want you to do is look at your life and get your answer from your life. Don't ask other people what they think based upon what your lips say. Ask your own self what your assessment is, your examination of your life, when you look at what your life says. And ask yourself this. I may say that I believe he's coming back, but am I living that way? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to do that very thing. I want to give you an opportunity to bow your heart and head before the Lord and ask the Holy Ghost to speak to your heart and to be honest with you and for you to be honest with God. And if God has dealt with you about something tonight, I believe I'd get honest with Him. I believe I'd open my heart to Him. I believe I'd let Him have His will and His way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.